the Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show. The effects of divorce, especially when the divorce involves children, last far longer than the divorce process itself. The consequences of marital dissolution can affect all members of the family and can last a lifetime. You've got questions, we've got answers. Family law legal experts answer your questions about divorce, kids, money, property, custody, spousal support, and more. Today is December the 21st. It's Wednesday evening, and I'm on with, I'm attorney Vince Davis, and I'm on with attorney Dan Knowlton. Dan, good evening. Good evening, Vince. Nice to be with you. Nice to be with you also. It's been a while since we were able to do a live show, so we're uh, back this evening, and we're going to be answering questions about custody and about visitation. Um, I, and we're going to cover, try to cover some of the basics about custody and visit, visitation tonight, Dan. But before okay. we get to that, I would like to know, I would like to talk, you know, I'm a big Brad Pitt fan and a big Angelina Jolie fan, and, you know, they're getting divorced. Have you heard anything about going on in, in the news about Brad or Angie? I've heard a little bit, um, and that is uh, that recently his motion to seal the papers in the divorce case uh, were denied, or uh, in the family law case, I should say. They were denied on December 7th. And uh, that's similar to uh, um, a custom that, uh, of uh, rulings that has been handed down since the Burkle case. Uh, in Burkle, who was, um, um, Burkle was the owner of like Safeway and some other major food stores. He tried to have his uh, divorce papers sealed, and the court declined it. And since then, uh, a number of uh, cases have been um, refused. The judges have refused to seal them. And apparently his motion to seal, Brad Pitt's motion to seal the papers, was denied for the same reasons. <clears throat> and that is that the public has a right to have information about uh, uh, court proceedings. Uh, additionally, um, did you have something to Vince? No, no, go ahead. Addi additionally what? Um, additionally, uh, Brad has apparently made some attempts to get more uh, monitored visits. He, uh, he has been uh, relegated to uh, supervised visitation, and he's asked to have more visits. He was, uh, I think he had, uh, let's see, yeah, he has six children, and he was asking for more, um, for more visits with them. And uh, uh, it's reported that he's been cleared by the FBI and the uh, DCFS, the Department of uh, Child and Family Services of any child abuse charges, so that helps his situation considerably. Um, and there was some talk about uh, a fight that happened while he was aboard an air flight uh, on his uh, plane, and uh, that seems to be the grounds for uh, um, the controversy about uh, his supervised visitations recently. And apparently that flight happened some time back. Um, that's uh, that's a, about what I've caught of the recent um, events in the, the pit matter. Have you, you know, heard anything Dan, more? Uh, yeah. Um, today, just today, 
there came out an article in this in a online magazine called Hollywood Life, uh, and it's by Bonnie Fuller. And she has an article that says Brad Pitt begs Angelina Jolie for just five hours with kids for holidays. Will she allow it? And the article goes on. It says, poor Brad Pitt, the devastated father of six, is reportedly asking Angelina Jolie to let him have a few extra hours with their children over the holidays. But will she budge in the spirit of Christmas? Brad Pitt, 53, is so desperate to see his children on Christmas that he's even invited over his estranged wife, Angelina Jolie, 41, in hopes that they can spend the day together, reports In Touch Weekly. This even went completely against advice from his legal team, uh, the reports claims, but he wants to see his kids, Maddox, 15, Zahara, 11, Pax, 13, Shiloh, 10, Vivian, and Knox, 8, so badly he didn't care. Unfortunately, Angelina just kept turning him down, a source shared with the outlet. Brad is stunned by the lengths to which Angelina is going to seek revenge against him, the source added. So sad. On the top of Brad not being on top of Brad not being able to see the kids for Christmas, it appears he also wasn't able to see them on his birthday, December 18th. First, Angelina was spotted out with her daughter Shiloh shopping on Brad's birthday, showing that at least one of the children was definitely not with their father. Then HollywoodLife.com exclusively reported that Brad spent his big 5-3 having a mellow dinner with some of his nearest and dearest friends, though unfortunately none of his children were in attendance. Such a bummer. For now, it isn't clear that Brad and Angelina holiday plans consist of, but no matter what, it's important that all six of their children enjoy the time. It's been a rough year for the whole family, and making their children happy should definitely be Brad and Angelina's number one priority. That was from HollywoodLife.com from today, uh, an article by Bonnie Fuller. So it seems... It seems that these folks are going through uh, the same problems, which we were going to touch on tonight, Dan, about custody and visitation. It seems Brad and Angelina still have those same same problems as everyone else. And so I wish them the best. Dan, what I'm going to do is tough. especially around Christmas time. Absolutely. So I'm going to launch into the first question. What's the first question we have tonight from our uh, listeners? Uh, the first question is, how do I know what court to file my family law case in? And if you'd like me to take off on how that. You, um, uh, please, please do. Naturally, yeah, if you, uh, these days with Google and what have you, uh, most counties have websites, court websites, and you can Google the uh, the court website for the various counties. And in those, if you take a little time to go through them, you can find a, a space in most of them where it says, uh, where shall I file my case? And what you'll find under that listing 
will be various zip codes in that county. And it'll say, typically it'll say, if you live in this zip code, uh, that's where you file your case. And it isn't just if you live in that zip code. If either party lives in that zip code, normally you could file uh, your family law case if uh, the petitioner or the respondent um, lives in that zip code. So there is a, a bit of a choice, typically. <clears throat> if if uh, that particular um, zip code is a problem, as it is from time to time, you know, a party can make a motion for a change of venue, um, and that is a motion to the court to ask the court to order it to the other to the other place where it might have legally been filed. Say instead of the petitioner's residence to the respondent's zip code of residence. <clears throat> but if you do that, you'd have to have good, sound legal reasons for it. And uh, if a motion is made for frivolous reasons, the court can order and often does order attorney's fees to be paid by the party who made the frivolous motion for change of venue. So uh, people don't make change of venue motions as readily as they did, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, they're, they're a fewer now. <clears throat> did you have anything on that, Vince? Yeah. Yeah, Dan, let me ask you something. Let's say I live in Pasadena, three blocks from the Pasadena Courthouse in Los Angeles County. Do I have a choice of, of uh, filing my case in Pasadena or in Los Angeles, downtown? Well, um, I'm not as uh, as um, as experienced in Los Angeles as I'd like to be. I've, I haven't been here a long time. But my understanding is that you could file it in either Central, the Central uh, Stanley Mosque Court, or you could file it in the Pasadena Court, uh, that, and that it could be readily transferred. Now, um, correct me if I'm misunderstanding that. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. And what I want to tell our listeners is the place where you should file or where you can file is determined by the local rules in the particular county that you live in here in California. And it's always good to speak to a lawyer and perhaps, you know, getting some uh, first initial consultation as we give, Dan. Um, you can get that information from, um, you know, just consulting with a lawyer where you should file your case. Uh, some, a lot of attorneys favor filing cases downtown. Uh, a lot of attorneys favor uh, filing it in your local jurisdiction. It just depends on the attorney that you have and their experiences. Um, right. Dan, our second, our, our second question is, what are the factors in deciding the child's standard of living? Well, um, I'd like to compare this with um, the standard of living, since that, that is the wording used, the standard of living factor that's um, used in marital standard of living when you're talking about spousal support. <clears throat> in, uh, in spousal support, the court often uh, is required to go through what the marital standard of living is for the parties as a factor in evaluating uh, the needs of the, of the spouses for spousal support uh, after, the, uh, after the trial. <clears throat> and um, these days, of course, the main consideration they have is what the income of the parties is, and sometimes they'll, um, they'll use the older classifications of, of um, just 
um, middle income or lower income, middle class, um, lower middle class, that kind of thing. But in child, the child standard of living, that basically is the um, doctrine of the child's station in life, is how that is uh, altered from the marital standard of living. <clears throat> and that principle is that a child is entitled to uh, live at the station in life that his parents live in, or his parents are capable. Uh, one of the sayings uh, in this area is that, that um, the child gets to ride the escalator of the income, or the escalator of the career of his parents all the way to the top is uh, one of the doctrines. <clears throat> and so the child uh, does get to have a luxurious standard of living if his parent parents have that kind of a standard of living. That's his or her station in life. Now, that's not an absolute factor. The needs of the child and the best interests of the child are, are very paramount. <clears throat> and sometimes the needs of the child um, are far exceeded by the ability of a, a wealthy or very well-off parent. So if the reasonable needs of the child are uh, would be exceeded by the guideline of the high-income parent, there is case authority that uh, the court can order lower than what the guideline, the computer-generated factors, would dictate. Um, and that is uh, the marriage of Kerr is one case that has upheld that. And more recently, a case called SP versus FG is quite interesting. In that case, the father had a yearly income, an annual income of $4 million. And when the mother went in to increase the support to the station of life doctrine uh, to the amount that the guideline would generate, the father defended by showing the detailed factual needs of the child and pointed out to the court, convinced the court, that many of the hopes and dreams that the mother had about the things she wanted to do, um, <clears throat> the, the um, various classes that she wanted the child to attend and the various uh, things she wanted to buy for the child, that if they had no foundation in fact, if they were unsupported in fact, that the court could decline them. And the court did in that case, and the Court of Appeals upheld it, upheld a lower ruling um, to the mother. Uh, despite that very high income of the father. So um, the needs of the child can be considered strongly. Now we do have, for for most of the cases that we see day to day, <clears throat> the guideline is what determines the child's standard of living. And the child support guideline enacted in California and all across the country in various forms, uh, every state has a different guideline, but the guideline in California is primarily based on the relative incomes of the parents. It, you plug in the, uh, the uh, gross income each parent has, and then you uh, make some other entries as far as such things as timeshare. Timeshare is a very strong factor. And uh, who's paying the uh, health insurance for the child, that sort of thing, and some other entries. And that will uh, generate an income or generate a child support amount that the parent would presumptively pay. Now, it's not absolute. It's presumptive. The court has the power to overrule it. 
but it rarely is. <clears throat> Most of the time, the court just sticks with the guideline. There are uh, cases where a deviation from guideline can be made. That's a deviation could be upward or downward. Um, <clears throat> there have been uh, 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 deviations based on the parent, one parent, for example, having excessive amounts of uh, credit card debt could be a factor that the court could use to adjust the guideline support. Um, and uh, if the court does that, the court is required to make findings about it, and the court is required to to print out a guideline that it's deviating from before it just uh, willy-nilly changes the amount from the guideline. Um, what do you okay. uh, have on that, Vince? Nothing more, Dan. I think that you gave a very good explanation of it. Um, and a lot of times, uh, I, I don't think attorneys analyze uh, visitation and support in those manners. So that was a very good explanation that you've given. Oh, thank you. Dan, going to our next question, going to our next question, it says, what is a temporary order and when is it used? Well, um, one way of, of looking at family law matters are <clears throat> asking the court for temporary orders and quote-unquote permanent orders. Now, temporary orders are pre-trial orders. Um, when one goes into court uh, on a divorce or, or uh, a separation proceeding, <clears throat> that's a civil lawsuit, and it has factors like other civil lawsuits, but the uh, the parties will have immediate needs for things like spousal support, child support, child custody, child visitation orders. They'll have disputes about these things that they'll want orders from the court uh, determining um, uh, an outcome so that the parties can stop arguing about it and know what the rule is on it. And when they want those determinations, they make a motion for them. Now, our motions used to be called orders to show cause. Now we've done away with that old language and we're calling them requ uh, requests for orders or RFOs, requests for orders. All that is, is is one party making a formal request to the court to do something. Judge, please determine what how much spousal support he has to pay me. Um, judge, uh, uh, make an order that I get uh, primary physical custody. That kind of a, a question. No, those orders are called temporary orders if they're made before trial. <clears throat> a, a period goes by, uh, the discovery period, for example, when parties are investigating what the case uh, needs and what the, the facts are for both sides of the case. And during that discovery period, the parties need to have these various orders. And the orders and the discovery are done preparatory to the trial. The trial is the big event in any uh, family law matter, and the trial is where oral testimony uh, is often taken, can be taken, and the court makes orders that can be permanent. Um, now, I say can be permanent because in family law, there are a lot of things that are uh, they, semi-permanent at trial. For example, child custody and child support, even though the judge makes a quote-unquote final ruling at the trial, they are always modifiable. But after the judge makes the order, you'd have to have a, a show a change of circumstances in a lot of cases um, to change 
uh, for example, child support or child custody. In child custody, it's more important about whether you have to have a, a material change of circumstances uh, before you're allowed to, to change child custody after a trial. But temporary orders are those orders made pre-trial, before the court makes the final rulings about everything. Uh, and now another exception to this idea of permanent orders at the trial is spousal support. Um, we call spousal support, sometimes we call it permanent support after the trial, but spousal support is rarely permanent. Uh, it can be modifiable in the proper circumstances. Uh, there are some limitations about uh, modifying spousal support, and spousal support um, oftentimes terminates after a certain period of years, or it uh, has a step down, a Richmond order, uh, after a certain period of time if the judge has ordered it that way. So we, while we call it permanent spousal support, it really is just post-trial spousal support. It may or may not be lifelong. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, also, uh, on for permanent orders, again, we're using the guideline on uh, child support. And for temporary orders, we can use the child, uh, we can use the guideline for spousal support as well. And my experience is about 90% of the time the judge does use the guideline for temporary orders of spousal support. Spousal support, for those who haven't heard of it much, is the same thing as what they call alimony in other states. It's um, support to your spouse. And if you go in on a temporary order, the judge runs a guideline typ typically, and the guideline will show what the temporary child support and spousal support would be. At trial, however, the judge is forbidden by law from using the guideline to determine spousal support. There, the judge is required to use the um, 4320 factors, that's Family Code 4320, which is about 15 factors that the judge has to sort through uh, factor by factor to make determinations of when it's ordering uh, post-trial spousal support, or you know, sometimes called permanent spousal support. Vince? Yes. Um, very good explanation. Um, let me ask you a question, because this always comes up. Sometimes it comes up with attorneys and clients, sometimes with judges. Let's say that today we got a temporary order regarding custody and visitation. And let's say a month or two goes by. Can either party, and we're pre-judgment, pre-trial, can either party file another RFO to change custody and visitation? And what is the standard if they do? Well, if we're pre-trial, there probably has not been a Montenegro order. Montenegro is a case that held that... Um, if the parties did not intend uh, at their hearing on custody that it be a permanent and final order, then it normally would be a, a order that can be changed without having to prove a material change of circumstances. Um, there are, uh, I, I should say, the general rule for changing a child custody or child visitation order that has already been made. The general rule is that you need to show to the court, you need to prove to the court that there has been a material change of circumstances that has happened um, requiring or uh, causing the, the judge to have good cause to 
um, reevaluate the custody situation. There are some exceptions to that. And um, the biggest exception, the most common one, is if the custody order was a stipulated custody order. If it was stipulated, even last week, if you went in and you stipulated to uh, a certain custody order for Johnny and Lucy, and then you change your mind and you wanted to file another one next week, well, you might have a hard time explaining to the judge why the first one was wrong and why you think this one is better now, but you don't have an obligation to prove that a change of circumstances has happened because the first one was stipulated, a stipulated order. Now, a second exception to it is where uh, you're making a change in a joint physical custody situation. Now, a joint physical custody situation could be, uh, you know, the party's having 50-50%, and one one parent wants to go in and have uh, an extra day, you know, change it to a 60-40 or something like that. <clears throat> in that situation, there's been a case at Birnbaum, I think it is, that says that if you're just going in for a modification in a joint custody situation, that it's not necessary to prove a material change of circumstances. What you need to uh, you, you don't have that obligation to prove. You just have to prove that it's in the best interest of the child for that change. So uh, that's one less hurdle that you'd have. Um, another uh, situation where you don't have the material change of circumstances requirement is in a domestic violence restraining order. And uh, there have been cases holding that that's not required um, if the custody order was made in a DV restraining order, domestic violence restraining order uh, situation. So those are three, and uh, some commentators feel that <clears throat> those exceptions have essentially uh, eaten up the rule, so th that the rule of requiring material change of circumstance in child custody has, has become more the exception. Did I answer the Very question good. you were seeking? Very good. Yes, you did. Very good. Very good. You know, the next question says, what is the difference between physical and legal custody? And when would a parent want either type of custody? Well, one way that a parent might want um, joint custody is what I just spoke of in the Birnbaum case. If you wanted to avoid um, having to prove a material change of circumstances, then you could fall into that exception if you had joint physical custody. Um, but the the bigger question is, what is the difference of the two? Um, sole and joint custody. Sole custody is, while we call it sole, it's not, uh, that's a bit of a misnomer. Uh, sole physical custody would typically be an 80% type arrangement. And um, when I say an 80%, 20% sharing arrangement, that would be like... Um, uh, the child is um, with mom uh, all the time, except on weekends. Every other weekend, dad has the child from 6 o'clock on Friday to 6 o'clock on Sunday. Plus, he might have a Wednesday midweek visit every Wednesday, where after school he can take the child over and have dinner with the child and then return the child to mom by bedtime. That would be an 80% type arrangement, very typical arrangement. And uh, that would be what we would call sole physical custody, generally. It's not 100%, although there are many cases where people have 100% just because of one parent has no interest in visiting, 
sadly, very sadly, or um, you know, substance abuse problems or that kind of thing. Um, joint custody is, um, of course, this is a spectrum. You know, uh, I, I think joint custody starts at about 30% to 33% timeshare. <clears throat> and when I say timeshare, that means the the actual it could be the number of hours that one parent has the child versus the number of hours that the other parent has. Now that seems kind of unnecessary detail to be calculating hours, but of course people argue about many things and we often get into actually adding up the hours and comparing it. So when you start adding up the timeshare hours, the parent who has the child drops the child off at school, picks the child up from school, that parent gets the school time added into the timeshare and that parent has this, the sleeping time of the child too, that the child is sleeping at the house. So those are the timeshare considerations. So once you have added up those those hours or days, however you want to look at it, <clears throat> if you're up to about 33%, that's where I think generally joint custody starts. So it could be anywhere from 30 to 33 to 40, 50% uh, timesharing uh, where you have joint custody. Now, the biggest advantage in having joint custody is if, <clears throat> I mean, aside from the obvious of being able to share time with the, your children and being able to raise your children and contribute to their lifestyle and their um, their values and their education, aside from that, from a tactical point of view, there's a big advantage of having joint custody because if you don't, if the other parent has sole physical custody, that parent has a presumptive right to be able to move away if they can convince the court that they're doing it for reasons other than just trying to frustrate the the visitation parent. So we have a case from the California Supreme Court called Burgess, and that case held that the parent who had primary uh, physical custody, or sole physical custody, I'll call it, um, in that case, that parent has the right to move away to another state uh, or another city if they think that's the best thing to do, as long as they um, are not shown to have done it just to frustrate the visitation of the other parent, just to mess with the other parent. So that can be a very valuable factor if you have joint custody. Then at least you have a fighting chance that you could prevent your spouse from moving your child um, out of state or to a very distant place. I mean, picture the difficulties of a parent moving away to Massachusetts if they've been living in California. Suddenly the dad, instead of having every other weekend with the child, now is relegated to looking at having um, only summer visitation because few people can afford to be flying back and forth every week or every two weeks or even a month. So having summer visitation and having spring vacation having half of uh, half or more of the winter a holiday visitation uh, and that that uh, naturally is change would change um, your relationship with your children tremendously so that can be prevented you have your best shot of preventing that if you have joint custody <clears throat> very good very good you know i get that question a lot dan that people uh, wanting to know the difference between physical and legal custody. Well, the next uh, question, me, Dan, is 
can, can I drop in on that question a second between physical and legal? Because I've spoken of joint and soul, but when we're talking physical and legal, physical custody is determining where the child is going to reside. Legal custody is health, education, and welfare questions. Is the child going to be brought up under a certain religion? Um, uh, is the child going to have uh, uh, an operation um, medical treatment. Uh, who's the doctor who's going to treat the child? That kind of thing is legal custody decisions. And the the one of the hallmark advantages of legal custody decisions is that if there's an issue that one parent has strong feelings about, the judge has the power to make a decision that that question is determined solely by that particular parent. Say I don't want Johnny to have a buzz cut haircut. I just feel funny about Johnny uh, having a buzz cut. And I point that out to the judge. The judge can say, well, as far as uh, you guys can determine jointly you know, whether he's going to be brought up Protestant or whatever or have this kind of medical treatment. But as far as having his haircuts, dad's going to make all decisions about haircuts. So that's <clears throat> one of the points in, to an advantage in legal custody. Go ahead, Vince. <laughs> I just need to throw that in. Our next question. Oh, no. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question is, what is the difference between, well, you talked about soul and joint custody already. So I'll go to the next question. How does the court decide what parent gets more custody or visitation? And when does a parent have to have, quote, supervised visitation, unquote? Well, that's the golden question in all those um, heavily disputed custody cases. The primary factor in all custody and visitation decisions is the best interest of the child. The best interest of the child. The court doesn't care what's most convenient for the parent so much. The court doesn't care much about what the financial impact on the parents is going to be, not nearly as much as what is the best interest of the child in any of these questions. <clears throat> and there are naturally myriad situations affecting the best interests of the child. You know, what? Um, how is the child treated at dad's house? Um, how does the child get along with this parent or that parent? Uh, who has been the primary parent raising the child? Who does the child go to when the child is um, having a meltdown or is, is um, upset? Um, who is the child most bonded with, we say, <clears throat> um, um, that is a is a factor for who the who the court might prefer uh, to have more time with the child. Um, <clears throat> so we can go on with um, an infinity of, of situations that happen in our offices all the time about uh, the custody and visitations and the various problems. And of course, <clears throat> the, we always want to look to the positive side. But we can't ignore the negative side either. You know, sometimes there is abuse. Sometimes the children are not treated well by a parent. And the other parent, if they don't point it out, the court will never know about it. So those factors do have to come up. And when it gets very bad, uh, such as child abuse or addiction of one parent or the other, uh, then the court, once the court is asked about the situation, the court might order supervised visitation. And supervised visitation can be of several different types. You know, say uh, the child has been abused or one parent is an alcoholic and um, 
as a serious problem. Um, then it could be a supervision uh, regimen determined by or monitored by um, a friendly third party, you know, a trusted aunt or a trusted uncle or uh, just a relative that both parties think is a suitable, trustworthy person to make sure that, say, dad, um, you know, doesn't come to the visitation drunk or that he doesn't, uh, uh, if he's addicted, that he doesn't take the child off into some dangerous situation. So that supervisor um, has the power to uh, halt the, the visitation if those kinds of things happen. So that's the uh, lightweight type of visitation. But oftentimes we have institutional um, supervised visitation where an agency is required to supervise um, the, the child visitation and one parent or, or the other is made to pay for it. And of course, that is a, has a strong, harsh effect on visitation to, sometimes if a parent has to pay to see his or her own child um, for an hour or two, you know, have to pay a supervisor for it and have to travel to the supervisor's location. Um, <clears throat> so that's that's what we have to deal with when situations get bad so that parents do have frequent and continuing contact with the kids. Then you know, I know Dan, that you've taken many situations you to that. Oh, I do. I, you know, their supervised visitation always pops up in family law cases, difficult family law cases, and also in the juvenile dependency court setting. Um, and it's usually one of the big issues for me is, um, you know, when you have supervised visitation, what the frequency and duration of those visits going to be, you know, is going to be. So, for example, frequency, how many times a week are they going to have the supervised visitation? And then the duration, how long is each visit going to be? And depending on who I represent and what type of case it is, there are many, many different arguments regarding uh, supervised visitation, uh, frequency, and duration. Right. Then and earlier I think you... Of... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. You think what? Well, I, I think one of the toughest situations we face is um, when a parent um, requires a supervised visitation and and the other parent has moved out of state. That makes it very difficult because um, if the parent wants to visit the child out of state, then you have to have the supervision uh, in that other state where the child is. And uh, that makes it a real nightmare sometimes, and, and uh, people sometimes uh, unfairly try to take advantage of that situation. So now, you mentioned out-of-state. How, how does a parent get out-of-state? I mean, how do they move from Los Angeles County to, you know, New York? Well, um, there's... a. Uh, three different ways that I see in general, of course, variations of everything. Uh, the, the number one way is in the cleanest way and the way that uh, generates least pro uh, less problems, the least problems, is to file a motion with the court asking for permission to move out of state. But of course, that's expensive to do. But uh, at least that way, we know that everybody's rights are protected and we know that the, the uh, complications are not going to occur because someone's done something unfairly. A, uh, uh, when a client comes to me and they say they want to move out of state, 
and they're disinclined to take on doing a court hearing, well, the first thing I ask is, can they get the written agreement of the other parent allowing them to move out of state? <clears throat> and uh, oftentimes they can if they are um, uh, work if they have a workable arrangement with the other parent. Uh, sometimes they can just get a signed agreement permitting them to move out of state uh, by that parent, and that would be fine. If not, uh, one other thing they can do is they can give a uh, a written notice, and I think it requires 45 days advance written notice <clears throat> by certified mail to the other parent notifying them that they intend to move out of state. And when that uh, notice is sent out and the parent the other parent um, opposes the move, then, of course, that parent, the reason the 45 days are there is so that that parent can go into court and file his or her RFO, the request for order, asking the judge to prohibit the parent from moving out of state or to uh, change the conditions of the visitation or set forth conditions for how that out-of-state visitation will occur. Uh, that, I think, is the general options that a person have has. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Are those types of cases difficult? I mean, are there 730 evaluations involved? Absolutely, they can be. And, of course, a 730 evaluation is where a uh, psychologist uh, would make a, a uh, recommendation to the court about what the psychologist thinks would be the best for the child. Now, that is uh, expensive to, to obtain a 730 evaluation. And um, initially, you could ask the other side if they would agree to a 730 evaluation. If they do, fine. You could hire the psychologist to do it. And if not, you could make a motion to the court, an RFO to the court, asking a 730 evaluator to be appointed by the court, and then the court could order it. What a 730 evaluator does is uh, they uh, run a number of psychological tests on the, uh, well, first of all, they, they do what the court tells them to do. The court is required to limit the scope of the evaluation to tell the evaluator what it is that the evaluator is supposed to be looking at. So, But typically what the evaluator does is run psychological uh, tests um, on the, on uh, both parents and the children, and uh, to see what is the best fit uh, for the 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 uh, choices of the parent and the child. That is, which parent is the best fit for that child, given the circumstance of, say, a move away to another state or another city far away. Um, and 730 is the, uh, the code section of the evidence code making that individual the the court's expert. <clears throat> Have you had many cases where you've worked or you've had this 730 evaluation for a move away? Yes. Yes, uh, I have. And uh, and depending on the evaluator, you can have quite a variation in the quality of the evaluation too. And um, a lot of a lot of times when the evaluation is done, some attorneys just look at the result of the evaluation and they accept it and go on with the case. 
the evaluations can be challenged. And uh, the, some of the most common challenges are whether or not they have complied with the court rules, whether the evaluators complied strictly with the court rules uh, for the evaluation. And the evaluation actually, in some cases, where the evaluator hasn't complied, the court has the power to throw out the evaluation or the uh, recommendations evaluation, <clears throat> typically because of the cost concerns. You know, the court would be making modifications of the evaluation. Okay. Is this what they call a 733? Well, a 733, uh, my recollection is that that's the challenge to the evaluation. So um, you have psychologist A who's doing the evaluation, and one party doesn't like the evaluation. Um, one parent doesn't like the evaluation. So that parent, let's say dad, <clears throat> decides he's going to hire a second evaluator uh, to go in and challenge the evaluation, to give a report about, uh, about the uh, quality of the first evaluation. Basically, that second evaluation is going to be looking at whether the uh, about the type of testing, et cetera, that was done, and largely looking at uh, whether the rules, the court rules, which are quite per, uh, specific now, whether those rules were followed. So yes, it could be a, a second evaluation, and then it's basically a battle of the evaluators as to which way the judge wants to go. Very good. You know, my next, the next question that we have is, um, what happens if a parent ca causes some problems with the court-ordered visitation? An example where a parent refuses to allow the child to visit with the other parent. Well, boy, does this happen every day, sometimes every hour um, in, in a law practice. Uh, the... Uh, the big thing, of course, one can do is you could bring a contempt mm -hmm. case, uh, but that's uh, like using mm -hmm. an uh, an artillery piece uh, sometimes mm -hmm. when you need really just a slingshot or a pea shooter. A contempt mm -hmm. to ask that uh, someone be punished and thrown in jail even um, because mm -hmm. of um, a, a visitation problem is an expensive and and very uh, angry. Um, result sometimes, and we try to avoid that as much as possible. But that is the ultimate big gun that can be brought up with a party ignoring or or um, violating visitation. Um, equally serious would be that the the law does require that uh, the courts order frequent and continuing visitation or access of the parents to the child. So in repeated situations of violation of visitation, you can go to court and ask the judge to change visitation. Judge, if mom is going to cause me so many problems as she has these past few years, I'm willing to give her visitation, so give me custody and take custody away from her because I'll give her frequent and continuing visitation. Okay, Dad, we'll do that. So that's a big sanction too. <clears throat> Um, softer, of course, is that you can go in and ask for makeup time if someone's taken away your time unfairly. You could go in and ask that uh, the judge order that you get this week and th that week time t 
to make up for the time that you didn't get before. That's softer, but not. But sometimes that's just a little too expensive. You can ask for attorney's fees at these various hearings. And we actually have a specific statute that allows the parties to ask for attorney's fees. It's called Family Code 3028. <clears throat> not only can you ask for attorney's fees when somebody's frustrating your visitation, you can ask for compensation for the expenses caused by that frustration. <clears throat> so if you have got provable expenses that, that uh, you can prove to the court, uh, that compensation and attorney's fees to the prevailing party can be obtained under that statute. And that, I think, is, is a powerful uh, remedy for someone who's really frustrating visitation. What about contempt? Well, contempt. Um, yes, you can get contempt if you approve it, um, the elements of contempt. You can have someone thrown in jail for five days for each count of contempt. Now, typically, the court on the first uh, violation, on the first contempt conviction, is going to give uh, a uh, um, suspended sentence or summary probation and make the party pay uh, sanctions, uh, attorney's fees. They can make him or her pay attorney's fees and uh, do some um, uh, county time, um, uh, what do they call it, work orders, uh, you know, picking up trash along the freeway or what have you as a punishment. Um, so those are some of the lighter sanctions on the first go-round. And that becomes worse at uh, second convictions. And uh, you can have multiple counts, and those counts can add up quite quickly. So contempt can be a very powerful sanction for someone who is really going out of their way to cause problems. Have you defended or prosecuted a contempt in a family law matter? Oh, yes, I have. Um, I've um, put people in jail, actually, for violating court orders, and it doesn't make anybody happy to do it. <clears throat> and more um, more often, you know, I've gotten um, orders for fees and um, uh, the uh, probation uh, on those kinds of situations. Uh, the the most common one, of course, is when some when a, a parent is not paying support, and those are a much cleaner conviction because you can prove them more readily. <clears throat> but they can add up, and uh, the uh, the hesitation I would have, and, and think about every time I would before I do a contempt, is that it's one thing when you have an argument with your spouse, but if you seek to throw them in jail. Whether you do or not, they will hold that against you forever. And if you are doing it over child visitation, you can bet an unscrupulous parent is going to make little in, uh, insinuations and innuendos to the kids about um, dad trying to throw me in jail or mom trying to throw me in jail. And that was, is very upsetting for the kids. So contempt is really, in my view, a last sanction but in some cases, it absolutely has to be used. And once once you do have a conviction of contempt, it's a powerful remedy in the ongoing family law litigation. 
You know, when a judge looks in the file for the divorce, <clears throat> when the judge is dividing up the property, the judge cannot help but be affected by seeing that the dad has been convicted of contempt because he knows that uh, some judge has gone through the scrupulous testing of the elements and the defenses to contempt and then made a decision to beyond a reasonable doubt that dad's guilty. And so he's going to have a look at dad a little sideways, you know, on a lot of the other issues. And uh, that can can help a lot in settling cases, too. So, yes, it is powerful. Dan, in the last few minutes, let's talk about something that's closely related to custody and visitation, and that's child support. How is child support computed or decided by the judge? Well, it's the relative incomes of the parties and the timeshare factor. Those are the biggest factors. And so the court is going to put into the guideline computation, which is a computer calculation, the incomes of the parties, the gross incomes, and he's going to put in or she's going to put in a timeshare factor, that is how much uh, time each parent is spending with a child. Then the court is going to consider, for example, uh, if one party is paying health insurance, uh, then that party gets to deduct from his gross income in the calculations, essentially, <clears throat> the amount of health insurance that that party is paying. And that doesn't have to be the health insurance only for the child. It's the health insurance for that parent's whole family, basically. So that can be a a large factor. The court will also consider uh, whether the income is taxable or not. If it's uh, income that is not taxed, that can be a a much uh, larger amount of support uh, that he'll or, or she'll have to pay because they're getting tax-free income. Um, in addition to that, the court uh, will consider as add-ons to the support of half of the uncovered medical expenses that the parent has to pay and half of the daycare expenses. Now, <clears throat> those are the um, um, mandatory add-ons. There are also some discretionary add-ons that the court can consider uh, tacking on to the support amount, and, and those are uh, factors such as education expenses that uh, might be considered, but uh, they're not not uh, mandatory. So um, mm-hmm. that's the general outline. Now, of course, there's there's a thousand different situations for the types of income and the um, the sharing of the child you know, the time shares, and uh, maybe one child is, is with, maybe the, maybe multiple children are with different parents, different amounts of times. That becomes complicated. <clears throat> maybe we have um, joint sharing arrangements. Um, there's a myriad of questions that, that pop up. Um, and then, of course, the deductions that the the parents are allowed to take. Um, you know, it's one parent taking head of household, and if they are, then of course they have, uh, they're paying less tax, so they uh, can 
that will affect their support amount um, if it's the, the parent with a larger income maybe that parent will have to pay more support because of that um, <clears throat> so uh, then the uh, whether you're entitled to the child dependency deduction that needs to be determined too as to who's getting the child dependency deduction because that will affect the ultimate outcome of the ultimate uh, amount determined in the support calculation. You know, once support's determined, uh, Dan, can it ever be lowered or modified higher or modified lower? Yes, absolutely. And by law, uh, support is has to be modifiable. If we're talking child support, it has to be modifiable. It remains that way. All that you have to do is uh, file your request for or your RFO and uh, show the judge that there's been a, a change of circumstances. Now, that doesn't mean the world is turned upside down. It could just mean that there's been a 10% change in your income uh, or the 10% change in the other parent's income. That might support a, a change of circumstances sufficient to recalculate the support. <clears throat> and uh, it's, I think it's rare that a court, in my experience, actually throws out a request for a child support modification. The court basically looks at what the situation is now and recalculates child support, typically. Uh, one factor you always need to remember is that the court can only go retroactively to the, the earliest possible date would be the date that the parent filed the RFO. So say what happens often is your income is dropped through the floor, <clears throat> maybe you've lost half your income, and you wring your hands for a couple months worrying about it and not knowing what to do, and then it's four months has gone by before you go to you go file your RFO, or maybe you're t uh, having trouble raising your raising the retainer to get an attorney to do it. Um, so four months has gone by, and now you go in and ask the court to, for uh, to change the support downward for those four months, and the court says, "I'm sorry, the law doesn't allow me to do that. You're stuck at that high rate for those four months." because I'm only allowed to go retroactive to the earliest date you filed your RFO motion. So if your income changes, you need to get into court quick, otherwise you're losing money every day. Very good, very good. Well, Dan, we're running out of time right now. Um, next week, you know what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about some property issues that go on in divorce cases. And Dan, okay. I know that you are a pretty expert. So um, we'll have our uh, listeners email us a uh, question. V.Davis at VincentWDavis.com. And uh, we'll take your questions under consideration. And we'll ask the expert Dan Knowlton, attorney Dan Knowlton, next week about issues about uh, assets and the issues about debts and division of property and businesses and valuation questions and all that good stuff. How does that sound, Dan? That sounds great, and I'll look forward to it, Vince. Thank you very much for joining me, Dan, and uh, thank you, the audience, for listening, and we'll see you next week on the radio. Good night. Good night.